I'll read this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5 and we'll be reading verses 1 to 16. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Good morning, friends. Uh, Nice to see you. I'll pray and we'll get into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your wonderful word to us. We pray this morning, please, would you enlarge our vision. Uh, Please enlarge our vision of who we've been saved by, uh, of what we've been saved for, and of what we look forward to. Father, please, would you excite us and challenge us and send us again to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Friends, as we start up this morning, I want to ask you a question. The question's this. If you could have anything in your daily job description, what would it be? I want you to imagine for a moment that the sky's the limit. Anything's possible. You write the rules. You can have whatever you want. What would your ideal job description be? Uh, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you know, a, a domestic technician, uh, would it be self-washing clothes, uh, self-cooking meals? Would it be a little switch on the back of the kids' heads that just had marked above it, joyful compliance? Uh, maybe one on the back of the husband or wife's head too. If, um, if you're in business in the city, uh, would it be that swish corner office with the view or, or maybe uh, an at-work masseur? For the sort of four to five shift. If you're studying at school, would it just be guaranteed A's? What would it be? 
Uh, my brother worked in a company once where they actually had a committee at work called the Best Company in the World Committee. And the job description for that committee was to make their company exactly that. And as best I could tell, it mostly involved corporate tents at national sporting events during work time, which I figured was nice work if you could get it. But what would it be for you? What would your ideal job description be? We asked our students this on campus down at Deakin just recently. What did they answer? Answer one, more holidays. I wanted to remind them just how many holidays we get at Deakin, but that's okay, more holidays. Answer two, more travel. Answer three, more adventure. In fact, one person said, and I quote, my ideal job would be travelling the world, doing adventures for other people. And actually that came from one of our staff workers and we're due to have a chat about that very soon. But again, I want to ask you, what would it be? What would your ideal job description be? And the reason I ask is, and I don't know if you noticed it, in the passage we just had read, God gives us his. His ideal job description for a follower of his son. Or better yet, his ideal life description for a follower of his son. In our sermon last week, remember, Chris spoke from the Psalms of the, of the person who longs for God, like a, like a deer for the water, who, who longs for God's will more than anything else, who, who says, a bit, a bit like an old Rod Stewart song, I don't know if you know it, what do you want me to do? It says it something like that as well. This is God's answer, or at least part of it. We just started a preaching series on campus on, on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and, and we've described it to the students as, as God's not negotiable job description for those who would follow him. As, as what it will look like if you're to live rightly for your king. In the verses just before this, in, in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus has just announced, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, turn back to God. His promised rule has arrived. And of course, what the sensible person will want to know, what, what the thinking person will want to know is, what am I turning back to? What am I signing up for? What are the terms of reference for this new life you're asking me to live? And this is what Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what you sign up for if you sign up with Jesus. And what it's supposed to do for us, I think, is excite us and challenge us and send us back again to Jesus. It's it's supposed to excite us. Whether we're like the crowd, you see them there, verse 1, standing around the edges, interested, but not yet in. Or whether you like the disciples, those who have been drawn and called and chosen by Jesus, it's supposed to excite us about just how great life can be when it's a life lived with Jesus. You're supposed to say, forget self-cooking meals, swish corner office, I want this. And it's supposed to challenge us too. As you read these words, as you keep reading the the Sermon on the Mount, you're supposed to see this description and think to yourself, but 
but I couldn't do this. Left to my own devices, this is beyond me. And, and see, that's why it's supposed to send you directly to Jesus, to him who's already lived this for you, to him who can empower this in you. And so we turn now to God's ideal job description and we ask, what does it mean to live rightly as a follower of the King? Well, it means, and it says in your outlines, if you've got those there, and I'd love you to have your Bibles open, Matthew 5, you'll find it helpful. It means, Jesus says, standing out just like him with persecution now and reward later for others' good and God's glory. I don't know about you, but if there's one thing I hate, I hate standing out. I hate being different. Given the choice of where to sit, I'm sitting at the back. Discussions in class, I'm just keeping quiet. I don't want to be noticed. I don't want to stand out. But Jesus says, bad luck. Because to follow me is to choose exactly that. Have a look there. Chapter 5, all the way down, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's, it's no longer good for anything. It's had to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it, and it gives light to everyone in the house. I'll never forget this one particular lunch at my mother-in-law's uh, place. There'd, there'd been some sort of pantry mix-up. Um, and what had happened was the, the sugar container had been emptied of sugar and filled with salt. Um, still somewhat of a mystery how. Anyway, so, so salt's in the sugar container. And so salt goes into the cake. And my darling mother-in-law, who I love very much, I don't expect she's ever going to listen to this, but just in case, I love you, uh, mother-in-law, uh, she makes a cake. Salt instead of sugar, and she bakes the cake with salt instead of sugar, and she serves the cake to me. And I took the cake, and like the good son-in-law I am, I, I dutifully ate the cake, literally tears in my eyes. <laughs> and then she handed one to my sister-in-law, who took one bite, gave one almighty, <coughs> and said, trying to recover, "Oh boy, that's different." And of course, that's Jesus' point, isn't it? If you sign up with Jesus, you're different. You're salt. You're different from the hypocritically religious on the one hand from the happily godless on the other. It's like light, verse 14. If you've ever been somewhere really, really dark, remember the school excursion to Janolan Caves. I don't expect many of you have been there. It's in New South Wales. But imagine, cave, it's dark. Someone lights. Someone turns on the light. Maybe somewhere else you've been dark and someone sparks the match. They shine the torch. What happens? It stands out, doesn't it? It makes a difference. And again, that's the point. That's you, Jesus says. It's like a city on top of a hill. It just can't be hidden. That's you, Jesus says. And notice, it's not merely what you do, Jesus says. Actually, that's you. It's who you are. You are visibly different. 
Indeed, you're valuably different if you stand with him. Because I think that that begs the question, doesn't it? Different in what kind of way? Is it in kind of daggy clothes? I wear my sandals on the outside of my socks kind of, kind of way? Or is it a keep for it to ourselves, kind of hide from the world kind of way? Do we, do we maintain our difference by keeping our distance? Or do we define our difference in contrast to our world? Well, the answer is no. No, we are lights among the lightless. We are salt among the saltless as we define our difference by our likeness to him. Our difference in the end is a byproduct of our likeness to him, a likeness Jesus sets out right at the start from verses 3 and following. That's where he lists out the character requirements of a follower of him, a character that copies Christ. You see it there, verse 3, it's someone who's poor in spirit. Which doesn't mean, by the way, I think when sometimes we make this mistake, it doesn't mean weak or, or timid, but it's someone who recognises their absolute poverty before God. And so they place themselves under God. And while they're there, you see verse 4, they mourn over their sin. Like what we're just saying, they see it clearly. They regret it deeply. They fight it desperately, be it, be it the, the gossip or the greed or the pride or the pornography. That, as one old prayer we used to pray regularly in the kind of churches I grew up in said, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. That's them. See, because they do, verse 5, they're meek. Or, or in other words, they're gentle with those around them. They, See, knowing themselves as forgiven sinners under God, they're gentle. With fellow forgiven sinners, as the old description of the Christian used to say, we're simply beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. We are simply sinners telling other sinners where they can find help. And so they're gentle with fellow beggars. No better, no worse than them. And, and you see verse 6, they long for righteousness, like a, like a starving person longs for food, a, a thirsty person longs for drink. And Jesus will pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done, so they pray it too. Fix this world, God, they say. Fix my life, God, they say. And then they do what they can to cooperate with him, both in their own life and out in his world as they strive for godliness themselves, as they strive for righteousness with that, maybe writing to politicians, maybe choosing ethical investments, fair trade coffee, giving what they can, whatever it is, they strive to do what is right and to see right done. I want to say already, you can see, can't you, this is a revolutionary change with God, with others, in themselves, in the world, this is a total life rewrite. But Jesus hasn't finished. Jesus goes on. They also show mercy. See verse 7. Having received mercy from God, they give mercy to others. Not always demanding justice for every little offence. Not always keeping score whenever they're wronged. 
with a pure heart, verse 8, which, which I guess could possibly mean a sinless heart, but probably more likely, I think, means a singular heart. A heart fully devoted to God. He comes first, everything else second. And seeking peace with those around them. See verse 9. Not rehearsing their hurts. Ever caught yourself doing that? Not nursing their hurts. Ever caught yourself doing that? But just as Jesus made peace between us and he... So these seek peace with others and themselves. And I want you to imagine for a moment if everyone lived like this. Can you imagine what the world would be? I want you to imagine for a moment that all of us lived like this. I take it the promise from that first reading from Deuteronomy would be fulfilled. What great laws and statutes they have. What a great God they must follow. So what will it mean to live rightly as a follower of the king? To live up to God's life description? Well, it will mean one, standing out just like Jesus. With persecution now and reward later. Have a look at verse 10. Pick it up, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, When people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven from the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Throughout the Bible, again and again and again, the consistent expectation for the Christian, for anyone who lives like this, is persecution just like the Christians in Iraq, just like the Christians in Sudan, just like the Christians in North Korea, just like the Christians, I'm told, in 133 countries, that's two-thirds of all nations, who are officially recognised as mistreated and marginalised and mocked because they live for Jesus. As Jesus himself will say, no servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Or as Paul will say, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We look at what's happening in Iraq and we say it's awful and it is. But we cannot look at what's happening in Iraq and say it's surprising because it's not. It is not. Jesus warned us. Does that mean we encourage it? Of course not. Does that mean we excuse it? Of course not. Does that mean we seek it? Of course not. Persecution is never okay and it's never our goal. Our goal is righteousness, verse 10. Our goal is Christ-likeness, verse 11. But if you seek that goal, if you come anywhere near meeting that goal, Jesus says, expect to be persecuted. To be called a fool, maybe even by those closest to you. To be put on the outer at school, at home, at work. To lose a job, famous case, went around social media recently, to be passed over for a job, lose a promotion. 
And maybe, of course, much, 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 much worse. To be a Christian is to expect persecution, Jesus says. And when it comes, verse 12, and notice this is the first command of the section, when it comes, verse 12, be glad and rejoice. Even with the tears and with the cries and calls to the international community to step in and do something, be glad and rejoice. Why? Well, I take it not because of what's happening to you, no. Because even as it does, your reward, verse 12, is great in heaven. You know, I read another job description once. It's a great one. Allegedly, the newspaper ad for Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic Expedition 1901. It went like this. Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Small wages. Bitter cold. Long months of complete darkness. Constant danger. Safe return. Doubtful. Honour and recognition in case of success. I don't know about you, but... I read that description and think, who would do it? Who'd sign up for that? I can say, if that's me, London Times, 1901, I see that. There's just no pause. There is no finger to the chin. Hmm. I'm more like, where's the sports section in this, in this thing? And, it, and I wonder sometimes whether that's us too. Bible's open. Where's the sports section in this, in this thing? Who would sign up for this if what Jesus says is right? Who in their right mind would do this? But of course the ads though aren't quite the same, are they? For starters, there is no in case of, just like there was in the Ernest Shackleton ad. That there is no, gee, I wonder if it'll turn out all right in the end. Gee, I wonder if it'll be worth all the persecution. No, it is. It is. Success is guaranteed. Glory is coming. There are no ifs. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, you might like to look at those verses again. They're verses 1 to 12. Have a look. See if you can spot the if in verses 1 to 12. I'll give you a hint. There are none. Sorry if that was a little bit off-putting. There's no ifs. There is no if you do this. Or or, or perhaps I think as we might say, if you do this enough, then you will get this. Not if you are pure enough in heart, if you mourn enough over your sin, then. No, it's just you will receive this if you sign up with Jesus. So be poor in spirit, be pure in heart. So often I think we read these verses, these exact verses, as if they're conditions or even as if they're commands, a kind of burden on our back. But please look again, it's not how they're written. That is not Jesus' point, at least not in the first place. The point I take it is you are like this if you're living for him. No matter how foolish it seems, how weak it seems, how pathetic it seems, this is you, so keep doing it. Don't give up. Hang in there. Why? Because your reward is already great in heaven. You are now blessed. You can't miss it, can you? How many times is the word in the verses? Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. I think God's trying to tell us something. 
In other words, and here's really what the word blessed means, you are the most fortunate, the most enviable, the most lucky, if we're happy with God ordaining luckiness. You, you, you are in the best position anyone could be, even in your suffering, if you're with Jesus. And why? Well, it's because of what you look forward to. It's because of future hope. It's because of all the second half of those verses. In the verses 3 to 12, you see, because you will be comforted. He's going to wrap his arms around you. You will inherit the earth. Even they take your possessions. Now, you will finally be filled, finally fully righteous and you will see God, as Chris often reminds us in these services. He's coming back to get you. He's coming back to get you. The same God who's already welcomed you into his kingdom. The kingdom is yours. The Apostle Paul will write, For I consider the present sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Peter will write, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's given us new birth and a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's worth it. See, what will it mean to live rightly for the king? It means standing out just like Jesus with persecution now and reward later as we live for others' good and God's glory. One of the really big things we try to impress upon our students, young Christians on campus, is that in the beginning, when God made you, it wasn't for you. And in the end, when God saved you, it wasn't for you. We were made, and indeed we were saved, for other people and for God's glory. And that's how Jesus ends these verses there in verse 16, last verses, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds. I take it good done for them. And praise your Father in heaven. Be different, Jesus says, for others' good. Make that your goal. Make verses 3 to 10, Jesus says, your aim. Both when it's light in the dark, appreciated, that sometimes is, and when it's bitter tasting, spit out of your mouth, salty, unpopular, and sometimes it is. Live for others' good and God's glory. As we wrap up our time together, I remember one girl in my school who did exactly that. And I want to tell you, that girl stood out and man, she had a hard time for it. She was one of the few Christians I knew in my year group and I found out just this year that so hard was her life made because of it that the teachers gave her a key to the little AV store. So when things got bad enough, she could just go and basically hide in there in the morning tea and lunch times. She was different and she paid for it. But of course she had accepted God's life description. I know to tell you, although I never told her at the time, I really, really admired her for it. 
and I now praise God for it. Earlier this year, her and her family came and stayed at my family's place. In fact, she visited this church with her family. She met some of you. And I was able to tell her husband and tell her children of the incredible difference she made both for my good and for God's glory. And I want to ask you, don't you want that to be you too? If you're a Christian, isn't it encouraging to think that could be you too? This can be you too. And as you, as you read it, don't you feel challenged just to step up to the plate and to live life with a little more courage and a little less compromise? Perhaps this week, just to pick one of the list, just pick one thing and work on it this week to be different for others' good God's glory. And are you reminded as we read it together just how much you're going to need Jesus to do it? Aren't you grateful that he did this perfectly for you before he died in your place? Aren't you grateful that he sends his spirit to empower you to live like this? And if you're not a Christian, we want to say it's brilliant that you're here. We want you here. Are you excited too? We're just maybe a little bit more interested in what life could look like, a life lived with Jesus. Are you challenged to that? Actually, this is impossible if you don't do it with him. And are you, are you drawn to him a little more this morning? If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we encourage you this morning, just take one step, one step closer to him. Come and talk to someone, Chris, or someone else you trust. Come and embrace the life he has for us. Friends, this is God's ideal life description. Let's pray we can be a part of it. Let's pray. Our wonderful God of heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, for his perfect life lived on our behalf, and we thank you too for the life we are called to in him. Our Father, please would you help us stand out because we live like Jesus. Please would you help us bear, for, bear with the persecution that will come if we do. Please would you give us a firm and huge hope of what comes next and lasts for eternity. And please would you keep doing that work in us that would reorient us, that we would always be living for others' good and most of all for your glory. It's for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.